0: What a wonderful song we just sang. Christ is our only hope in life and death. It's not just in death. It's not just at the time that we die that we need to look to Christ. But he's our only hope in this life. And it is him that we proclaim. It is him that we teach. It is him that we preach from this pulpit. We've been working our way through Romans. In fact, just started in October with the gospel that Paul has preached here in Romans, he's told us he's preaching the gospel to the Christians in Rome. And it really should remind us that even as Christians, we need to hear the gospel. Even as Christians, we need to be reminded of who we once were, what are we saved from, who are we now in Christ? What has God done for us even since before the creation of the world? What will God do for us and keep his promises in the future? That's all included in the book of Romans. Unfortunately, too many churches don't preach the gospel today. Uh, Too many churches don't preach that we need to repent of our sins and turn to Christ. Too many churches don't open the Bible enough and look at what God's word actually says. So that's what we want to do. That's what we're called to do as a church. Open, if you would, please, to the book of Romans chapter 2. And we need to hear Paul's ongoing description of the bad news. The bad news that there is a wrath awaiting, that there is a judgment awaiting all those who are not saved and in Christ. So we'll look today at Romans 2, 5 through 11. Even though in your bulletin it says the great divide in the day of God's wrath, it's really just part one today. Just part one. I had a A brother texts me and say, what's the passage tomorrow? I want to do some study on it. I said, Lord willing, I will cover 5 through 11. But the Lord was not willing or I was not willing, one of the two. And so we're going to get through 5 through 7 probably today because there's a huge theological issue in this passage that we want to open up, that we want to look at in the text here and not just fly past it and hope that you do your homework on your own. I want to open that up to you today. And look at this idea of the judgment according to works. Judgment according to works. Let me read the text to you. I want to read 2, 1 all the way through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore you are without excuse, O man, everyone who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you presume, O man, who passes judgment on those who practice such things, and does the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness? and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will repay to each according to his works. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and anger. There will be affliction and turmoil for every soul of man who works out evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who works good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. The problem that Paul is facing in his day, particularly amongst his brethren, the the Jewish people who had a covenant with God that goes back to Abraham, The problem that Paul saw here is that the Jews thought they were going to escape the wrath of God. They thought because they had a special relationship with God, that they had an inherited relationship based on their forefathers, that they would somehow escape God's judgment and get a ticket punch into heaven. That they would get eternal life and not eternal wrath. We see a lot of this today, don't we, in our society. In America... It used to be assumed that many times still is, especially in the South, that you are born a Christian. That you are born into a Christian family, so that makes you a Christian. I even had someone tell me just this last week, not, not in our church, but someone said to me, I think I was a Christian in the womb. And I had to, my wife was there, so I had to watch what I say. And I said, that's interesting. What I wanted to say was, you'd be the first one since John the Baptist. And the only one other than John the Baptist to be regenerated in the womb. But we grow up in this culture, don't we? And we live in this society that we're all just sort of saved by either choosing our religion or growing up in our religion that we inherited from our parents or we attend church all our life. And somehow that will rub off on us and we can stand before God someday in the judgment and say, God, I'm a sinner, but I can inherit something from these people, right? From my church. From my pastor, from my family, from my grandfather, my children? No, Paul says, it doesn't work like that. God will judge each person, it says, according to their works. And he's going to tell us in this passage, and you saw that already, that there's two and only two destinations after death. There's eternal life or eternal wrath. That's it. There's no in between. There's no neutral. Jesus said, you're either with me or against me. There was nothing in between. You're either with him or against him. You either will be saved or you will spend eternity in hell. That's not something a preacher made up or a theologian. That is over and over revealed to us in scripture. Now to remind you of the context where we're at here in Romans 2, Paul has been proving that Jews are also guilty before God. We saw in chapter 1 that Gentiles are guilty. We saw It's very clear, God says, that they know God. Paul has revealed that everyone knows God because God made himself evident to them in creation and also in their hearts. They know right from wrong. They know they should glorify him, but they have turned to worshiping idols. They have turned to sexual immorality because God gave them over as judgment. Because they turned away from him, he gave them over as judgment to sexual immorality, and all that list of sins in Romans 1. And you know what the moralistic, self-righteous Jew is thinking? I'm not like those Gentiles. You know, I'm not like those people who worship Satan and do it openly. I'm better than they are because I have a Bible. I have Abraham as my forefather. And Paul is telling us now in Romans 2, That the Jew, that's who the O man is, and two, one, and two, three. Do you think, O man, that you will escape judgment? The Jewish moralist, the Jewish unbeliever in Christ, do you think that you can get out of the same wrath that they're going to experience in eternity? And the answer, of course, is no. But he's going to prove his case. He's going to prove it from the Old Testament. He's already started that argument in in verse 2. We know. We know because scripture says, in other words, that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. They may not worship idols, but they worship a lot of things in their mind and heart, don't they? Just like today, mankind still worships money, worships immorality, worships pleasure, possessions, all these things of our world that we want to turn to instead of God. And yet Paul says to this person, whether it's Jew or even today, the moralist American, you are not going to escape the judgment. In fact, there's going to be a great divide of people on judgment day. And so he now goes into that in verses 5 through 11. What I want you to see, first of all, is that the first point, the self-righteous unbeliever stores up wrath. The self-righteous unbeliever stores up wrath, he says in verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. Now, that's not a language that we like to hear today, especially if you were an unbeliever and you are going through life, doing what you want, and someone tells you, you're being stubborn and unrepentant in your heart towards God. I even heard this week that that a neighbor in my hometown next to my parents' house I even heard that there's a neighbor there who has turned from God and now says he's an atheist, making his children and grandchildren sad as a result of that. Stubbornness. Stubbornness. The Greek word here is scleratos. Scleratos, where we get the word sclera from, or even the English word arteriosclerosis, the hardening of the arteries. This word means a hardening of the heart here, And it's often translated stubbornness because that's how it is seen in our lives. A stubbornness to turn towards God and do what he tells us to do. A hardened heart. A spiritual sclerosis or a hardening of the spiritual arteries, if you will. This word is often mentioned in the context of the heart. A hard, stubborn, calcified, stony heart. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 3. And you see this phrase used over and over to warn believers. And here it's Jewish believers, Jews who've turned to Christ, Hebrews who've turned to Christ. But they're tempted to reject Christ and go back to the old covenant out of persecution, fear of persecution. And so in 3.8, look how the author of Hebrews writes. He's quoting from the Old Testament. Do not harden your hearts. There it is again, the same word. Harden. Do not harden your hearts as when they, talking about the Israelites in the wilderness, they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. And the book of Numbers, you can read the account there where God has just saved them from Egypt. And all they do is complain. And all they do is say, Oh, that you brought us out of Egypt. Let us go back there so we can have food and water. These people are giants in the land. You're taking us into the land, the promised land. And they're going to wipe us out. They didn't trust in God. They did not have faith that God would fulfill his promises. They had a hardened heart. And so God punished them. They did not get to enter. It was the next generation that entered. They had to die in the wilderness. Go over to Hebrews 3.12. And you see this again. This is a warning here from the writer. See to it, brothers, that there not be any one of you An evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, as long as you still breathe air and still have today, encourage people not to turn away, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That tells us right there where this hard heart comes from. It comes from sinning over and over. It's deceitful. Sin itself is deceitful. It leads you into further sin, and a person's heart gets harder and harder towards God. That's what regeneration does whenever God makes a person alive again. When he makes them born again, he takes the hard heart out, the stony heart, and he replaces it, the Bible says, with a heart of flesh, a heart that can believe, a heart that can repent. But Paul says... The self-righteous unbeliever has a hardened heart. And it's also an unrepentant heart. Not only stubborn and hard-hearted, but unrepentant. They refuse to turn from their sin. They refuse to turn to God. They love their sin. They don't want to repent, which means to turn away from it in your mind and in your beliefs and in your actions and turn to God, to turn to the Messiah. They don't want to do that. And Paul says that is going to bring wrath. You must, you must turn to the Lord's salvation. There is no other way. Paul's already told us back in chapter one that he's not ashamed of the gospel in verse 16 for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And Jews are reading this letter, even unbelieving Jews. They're probably showing up to the church meeting there in Rome. And they're wondering, what's this Christianity thing all about? And here they are hearing this letter read, and it speaks right to them, to the Jew first. And you think you, oh man, oh Jew, are going to escape? Actually, you have a hardened, unrepentant heart. Over and over in the Bible, it speaks of Israel as being hardened. Uh, The prophet Zechariah says they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. That's what people do when they don't like the Bible. They don't like it being preached. They figuratively, they stop up their ears. Sometimes they'll say, stop preaching to me. You're evangelizing them. And they will say, I don't want to hear what you have to say from the Bible. Don't throw the Bible at me. Don't bash me with the Bible, they will say. They stop up their ears, Zechariah says. Uh, Prophet Ezekiel, speaking the words of God, says, yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, speaking about Ezekiel's prophecy, since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. And if you're a believer here today, that was you. You were stubborn and hard-hearted. You ought to thank God for changing your heart. Don't think that you are smart enough to get in there and break up that hard heart. You don't even have the right spiritual tools to do that. And Paul says to this Jewish moralist, look, You are hard-hearted and unrepentant. And because of that, he says, you're storing up wrath for yourself. You're storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath. This is frightening. This ought to be frightening to every Jew who reads this, but also every Gentile who's got some familiarity with Christianity. And they hear this text. Let's explain. Let's look at what it means. God's wrath basically is going to be proportionate. It's going to be proportionate to the hard-heartedness and unrepentant heart that a person has. God tells us in the Bible over and over that there's a day of wrath coming. And specifically here, there's a lot of different uses of the day of wrath. But here, he's talking about judgment day. There is a day where God is going to judge. And that's going to be a day of wrath for the unbeliever. They're going to experience God's wrath, not just in the decision that God gives. But in the eternal. Torment and punishment. That will follow. And Paul says. They're, they're storing it up. The self-righteous Jew. The self-righteous cultural Christian. They're, they're storing wrath up. For himself or herself. In that day. They're literally. The verb here is. Treasuring it up. And normally this verb. Is used in the New Testament. For good things. You know. Treasure up. Store up. Treasures in heaven. Do good works as a Christian, and store up, give and store up treasures in heaven. But this is a different idea. That's what's kind of a bit of irony here. As Paul is choosing this word to use here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, saying, no, it's not treasures. You think you're earning something with God, but actually he says you're storing up something else. Wrath. God's wrath. The self-righteous sinner is not going to escape God's wrath, It's quite the opposite. They're literally doing things in this life now that are storing up more and more wrath that's just waiting to be poured out on them. The image here is the unbeliever coming to judgment day and having this wrath then let loose on them. One old commentator, William Shedd said, the wrath accumulates like waters at a dam. By being held back by divine forbearance and patience. Right now, as the unbeliever lives and breathes, they're experiencing some of God's wrath, the wrath of abandonment. But the full wrath of God is being held back. Remember last week we talked about the patience, the the kindness, the forbearance of God. He's, He's waiting and he has... Set these things up so that it would lead you to repentance, but the person doesn't want to come because they're hardened. And the writer here, Paul, is telling us, look, someday that wrath is going to be let loose. And that day is called the day of wrath, judgment day. It's like a dam that will break and pour out and flood the unbeliever with God's anger. Hosea 13, 12 speaks of this. The inequity of Ephraim is bound up. It's being held back. The sin is bound up and being saved up. His sin, literally, it says, is stored up. And then Deuteronomy 32, 34. Is it not laid up in store with me, God says? Sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and retribution. And in due time, their foot will slip. There was a famous sermon on that by Jonathan Edwards. You should go look at the most famous sermon ever preached on American soil. He took that one phrase, In due time, their foot will slip. And he preached a whole sermon on it, and it brought revival in the time of the colonies in America. But continuing on in Deuteronomy 32-34, For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. There is a time when that person's foot will slip, when when essentially they will die, And be brought before God. And ultimately there is judgment day. There is the final judgment day. And Paul says the unbeliever is storing up all this wrath. They think because they know the Bible and they're moral. And they know something about God. That they can judge everyone else. But in doing that. They're actually showing that they know God's word. And they're not following it. And they're storing up all of this punishment. And he continues. He describes it a different way. He said, And revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God's going to reveal his judgment on that day. It will be manifested by God himself. Right now, like I said, we see some of God's wrath of abandonment. And there are hints everywhere that God's wrath will come upon the earth. But it's not seen fully. I mean, thank the Lord we don't see it right now. Thank the Lord there's still time to, to reach unbelievers. Thank the Lord the gospel still goes out. But there will come a day It will we'll be fully shown. God's wrath will be fully revealed and there will be no more time. Nothing anyone does will allow them to escape that day of judgment when it comes. And it says that God's judgment is righteous. It's righteous. No one can accuse God of, of being unrighteous in the judgment. No one can accuse God of making a wrong decision or a bad decision because he knows everyone's heart and he knows everyone's actions, which is where Paul is going now in the argument. One more text out of Hebrews. Hebrews is such a great book because it warns us. It has all these warnings. It says Hebrews 9.27, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this, comes judgment. There's only one life. There's only one life, and then you die, and then there is a day of judgment. So the question then becomes, what are you going to do with this life? And who are you going to trust in to get you through that judgment? Who is with you? Who is standing beside you? Is Christ, the Son of God, with you or not? Because if he's not, then you're storing up wrath for the day of judgment. It doesn't matter if you're sitting here today with your parents and they're Christians. If you're not a true believer in Christ, there is a huge, huge lake, we could call it, of fire, of wrath being stored up behind the dam and it will be let loose. It doesn't matter if your parents were the greatest Christian people that you grew up with. Thank the Lord for Christian parents. They taught you the truth. But God is going to look at you, not your parents. Secondly, and this is where Paul really opens up the argument. We won't even get through all of these verses today. But secondly, the self-righteous unbeliever will be judged based on works. He or she will be judged based on works. This is what he covers in 6 through 11. He wants to develop his argument further. I mean, Paul is a masterful preacher and he's going to use the Old Testament over and over to prove his case. Even if people didn't grow up with the Bible, he's including that Old Testament text, the word of God in the book of Romans to back up his argument. So the the first thing I want you to see under this main point is that judgment will be individual. Look at the beginning of verse six. Who will pay to each? Just stop right there. God's wrath is coming. And he's going to reveal a righteous judgment. And you notice in verse 5, it finishes with the word God. Then verse 6 says, who, that's God, is going to repay to each each person. This is a quote. This whole verse, verse 6, is a quote from Psalm 62, 12. And loving kindness is yours, O God, for you recompense a man according to his work. Isn't that interesting? The psalmist puts God's loving kindness... His hessed love, his steadfast, faithful love, and puts it right next to this idea that people will be paid back according to their work. In other words, we can't separate the attributes, the perfections of God. We can't say God is all love. Of course, he'll never judge. We can't say that. We can't say God is all wrath and judgment and righteousness and not love and goodness. The Bible tells us what we ought to believe about God. And even the psalmist understood that and had no problem putting those side by side in that verse. Also, this is very similar. And some say he's also quoting, because they're so similar here, Proverbs 24, 12. And will he not render to man according to his work? So these verses are speaking of rendering a judgment according to each person's work. Each person will stand before God. You won't have a defense team. If you're in Christ, he will be your defense attorney, of course. But outside of Christ, you will have no one there with you. No one to help you. No one. Your, it will be based on your works. Not your mother's works, your father's works, your grandfather's works, your preacher's work. Your wife, your spouse. You know, a lot of times unbelievers are, are brought to church by a believing spouse. And that's a good thing. Maybe they'll hear the gospel. maybe they'll come to saving faith through that. But an unbeliever can't look to their spouse and say, you know, I went with my wife to church for 40 years. It's not going to work. It's not based on how good the church is. I mean, thank God for good churches. But you can't just show up and expect that it will rub off on you. You've got to trust in Christ yourself. It's not based on your upbringing, as I've already said. It's not based on anyone else's life but yours. We've we've lost this in our world today, but you are responsible for your own life. You, not someone else. In your day-to-day decisions and all that you do, but also, and most importantly, when you stand before the Lord. Now listen, no one's going to pay an indulgence to take off your time from hell if you're an unbeliever. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And there's this idea, even in evangelical Protestantism, That you can somehow do enough good work so that God will smile lightly upon you as an unbeliever. That God will, there's churches out there teaching unbelievers and sending missionaries around the world. Saying that as long as you do good in your own religion, it doesn't have to be Christianity, they say. As long as you do good as a Muslim, God will honor that and judge you according to your good work. Well, that is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. Let's look here at this second point. Judgment will be evidential. Judgment will be evidential. This is his big point here in the paragraph. God's judgment is perfectly righteous and it's based on the truth because he will simply look at a person's works, the fruit of each person's life. He will just look at the fruit. There doesn't have to be this big debate like there often is today. Well, in my heart, I believe, but I don't show that in my life. God will know. He will know everything you've ever done and be able to look and just see what your works show. And this is where Paul's going. The Jew understood this. Sometimes as as Christians, we get a bit confused on this theology here. But look at verse six. God will repay to each according to his work. This is how God's going to determine the outcome. Each person will stand before him in the judgment. And he will determine what they are to be paid according to their work. Just like a worker who goes to a job. They go and they do their job. And then if they're paid by the job and how well they've done, they will be paid according to their work. According to. You notice that prepositional phrase. It means based on the standard. In other words, your life will be looked at and your reward or punishment will be exactly matched up to your works. Now, the true Bible-believing, saved individual looks at that right there and already starts questioning, what is he talking about here? Where's the grace? Where's the faith? Well, we're not going to see that in this text. He's already mentioned it back in 16 and 17 of chapter 1. So before we move on, let's just remind ourselves what he said. He's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. So he's already put the peg in the ground. He's already laid the foundation for the gospel. Now remember, the next verse, 18 Starts covering what the unbeliever is in need of. They're in need of the righteousness of God because they have the wrath of God on them. Anyone outside of Christ, they don't have the righteousness of God being revealed to them through Christ. They have God's wrath being revealed to them. And that's the argument from 118 all the way to we get to chapter 3 and he finishes in 320. So let's continue with his argument here in 2.6, 2.7. He says, to those who buy perseverance and doing good. So God's going to repay each person according to his work. And now he starts off by talking about two groups. First, he's going to talk about the person who does good. And then later next week, we'll get to the person who does evil, wicked works. To those who by perseverance in doing good. This group is described as those who continue on in doing good deeds. Living a godly life, in other words. They, they continue on even amidst the trials of this life. There's a perseverance described here. It's not something who just does one good thing. It's not something who just does a week's worth of good things. Throughout their life, you are seeing a perseverance in doing good. They have a steadfast endurance that even when times are hard, even when there's stress and distress and turmoil and all these things in our world and persecutions, they're still seeking to glorify God by doing good. And they do this because he says they seek, they seek for honor, immortality, eternal life is given to them as their payment for that. Look, he says, present tense verb, to seek. In other words, they're constantly seeking for glory and honor and immortality. The present tense indicates that it's continuous. It's their regular lifestyle. It's ongoing. We often see this as we know godly men and women who through their whole life, they persevere in growing in the faith and becoming more and more like Christ. You don't wonder or worry about their salvation. You say, there's a godly person. There's someone who's glorifying God with their life. And when we see it in a young person, we're really amazed to see a young person give all that they are to the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him and show good fruit their whole life. Well, he says, look, they're seeking honor. They're seeking glory. They're seeking immortality. These words have a meaning. The, The glory is to be made perfect. The idea here is a glorified body and the resurrection. Even the Jews knew about the resurrection. And this person, they're doing good and living a godly life because they're seeking for that glorification that will happen in heaven someday. And they're also seeking honor. To be lifted up from the humble state. Instead of living this distressed, sinful life, they're going to be lifted up and honored. Honored with God forever. And also immortality, he says. They're, they're seeking Immortality, which means that there's no death, there's no corruption, there's no more pain. What would it be like to someday be with God forever and have no more pain? Not just the aches and pains that we have as we get older. And I'm experiencing plenty of those as I get into my later 40s. But the pain of sin, the pain of sadness, the pain that we experience. Throughout this world. He's saying this group seeks these things because they love God. They, they look for these things that God will give them. So they might truly be with him forever. So through persevering in good works. They will see eternal life, Paul says, Life forever with the glorious God who created all things. And is perfect and just and holy and righteous and good and gracious and glorious. But this passage raises a question, doesn't it? Doesn't it bring up a question in your mind? If you've been a Christian a while and studied the Bible and you know theology, this verse should trigger at least a small question in your mind, maybe a big question. Is this about works righteousness? Is Paul saying here that we can earn our way to heaven through good works? Is he telling the Jewish person that they can earn their salvation? Well, the answer is no. He's already told us in chapter 1, what? It's by faith. That the righteousness of Christ comes through faith in Christ. He's already established that. Let's look now at Romans chapter 3. A lot of commentators get confused here. A lot of Christians get confused in chapter 2 here with what Paul's saying. A lot of liberal Christians eat this up and say, there it is. You can be saved by your works. Let's look at 319. 319, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law, talking about the Jews, so that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, by good works, according to God's law, you're trying to earn something, no flesh will be justified in his sight. He quotes from the Old Testament. And in the Lord, you can't be saved. You can't be saved through works of the law for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let's skip over to verse 23. Again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's going to come back to this over and over, this idea that you can't be saved through works. You can't be saved through obeying God's law. You can't be glorified and have an eternal immortal body through doing the works of the law. Look at verse 28, Romans 3:28, for we maintain maintaining meaning it's already an established doctrine we just maintain what's already in scripture that a man is justified by faith apart from what works apart from works of the law now we get to romans chapter 4 and the whole chapter is about faith and through faith we're credited christ's righteousness if we have faith in him So clearly, Paul is not teaching works righteousness. He's not contradicting himself. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So he's just going to make clear he does the same in Galatians. You can't be saved by good works. That's not what gets you into heaven. That's not what Paul's saying. Let's go back to the passage here. Romans 2, 7, To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, they will receive eternal life. Now back up to verse 6, Who will repay to each according to his works. That according to is is very important. And, And what are they receiving? What does it say? A payment. You see, in the Bible, both the Old and New Testament are very clear that everyone will be judged according to their works and recompensed for that ecclesiastes 12:14 for god will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil now these texts aren't talking about that god is going to put the scale out there and he's going to weigh your sin versus your good works and looky there there's all your good works you'll be saved unbeliever Paul's just destroyed that argument already in Romans 1 and 2. It doesn't work like that. Because one sin's enough to break the whole scale and make the whole thing send you to eternity forever. This is not that kind of judgment. Paul is not talking about that. Neither are these texts from the Old Testament. Jeremiah seventeen ten. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways or works. According to the results of his deeds. Ezekiel thirty-three, twenty. Yet you say. The way of the Lord is not right. O house of Israel. I will judge each of you. According to his ways. Who was the Israelite in the Old Testament. Or even in Paul's day. They were someone who said. Of course I'm a follower of God. Of course I follow God. Of course I'm looking for the Messiah. Of course I'm going to heaven. God doesn't talk about. All these inner complaints that they're giving. Oh, my heart is right. My intentions are right. No, what does God say? We'll see what your works look like. We'll see what your fruit looks like. And isn't that what Jesus did in the Gospels? What did Jesus say? Did he say, you know, tell me what's on your heart today. Here's what Jesus said. Matthew 16:27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. John 5.28 Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. And those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus is not teaching that if you do good deeds, you're guaranteed eternal life. He's just skipping to the end point and saying, here's the reward. He's saying, if you show fruit, Of good deeds. Then you're mine. And that proves it. And you will receive eternal life. But if you claim to be mine. And show bad deeds. Like a lot of the Jews claim to be God's people. And what they do? Evil deeds. Then they will be paid back for that. So what am I saying? The Bible teaches. That for those who are not united with Christ. That they will be paid back. In eternal punishment. But those who are united with Christ will produce fruit. God will say, there's the fruit and receive rewards in heaven for the good fruit. Second Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is written to Christians. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Even Christians will have a type of judgment before Christ. It's not a a judgment to send people, send Christians to hell. It is a judgment of rewards. People united with Christ will go to heaven forever and ever. But there will be various kinds of rewards. We see this in Revelation. Let's go to Revelation together because I want you to see these passages. This is how the Bible ends now. He's encouraging believers with this letter. John is and... Recording the words of Jesus here in Revelation. Starting in 2.23. He's talking here about a false teacher in the church in, in Thyatira. And he says, I'll kill her with pestilence. Christ doesn't mess around with false teachers. I will kill her with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you. Talking to the true believers who don't follow the false teacher. I will give to you, to each one of you, according to your deeds. He says, I see your fruit. I know just by looking at your fruit, who that you obey, who that you follow. Go now to Revelation 20. Now we're going to see this great white throne judgment. After the millennial kingdom, it says in, in Revelation 20, 11, that there is this judgment. I saw the great. John says, I I saw a great white throne and him who sits upon it from those whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great, the small standing before the throne and books were open and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Every deed is written down in a book. Is what it says. Whether that's an actual. An account somewhere. Or just in the mind of God. It is recorded. And is brought forth here. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in him. And they were judged. Every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. This is the eternal Gehenna. The eternal hell. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, meaning they weren't elect, they weren't predestined, they weren't united with Christ, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Also, finishing the book of Revelation. Revelation twenty two twelve. 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So here's the summation of all of those. Here's the summation. Paul is making a distinction here. And when he writes Romans, there are sections where he talks about justification and sections where he talks about judgment. Justification means that you've been declared righteous. Because of your faith in Christ, God does not hold your sin accountable to you. You've been declared righteous because you've received the righteousness of Christ. He lived a perfect life. You got his righteousness because you had no, no righteousness. And he took away Your sin. That's justification. That's what he's going to spend a lot of time in Romans on. Here though. He's talking about something different. He's talking about a courtroom. A judgment. A final ruling. And he's saying. All people will stand before God. Believers will stand before Christ. And they're not concerned about being thrown into hell. They're going to be rewarded. But unbelievers will stand before the father. And be thrown into the lake of fire. According to their deeds. In other words, there is a distinction. Here's how John Piper puts it. We must learn to make the biblical distinction between earning eternal life on the basis of works, which the Bible does not teach. We do not earn eternal life on the basis of works. And he says, and the difference between receiving eternal life according to works, which the Bible does teach. In other words, we are saved. We are saved through faith alone and Christ alone. And we've been justified. We are recompensed according to our works. So if you're a believer. God is working through you. Christ is in you. And you are doing good works as a believer. If you're not doing any good works as a believer. You're not a believer. That's what the Bible says. And you're working good works. Not because you put your basis of salvation on that. That's in Christ. But you know when you die, and when you go into eternity, that Christ has promised rewards for his people. Now, the biggest reward is spending eternity with him. But there's also rewards for the good works, the Bible says. But the unbeliever is paid back for their sinful works. And that's what we'll look at more next week. In other words, your sanctification matters to God. And you'll be rewarded for that even as a Christian. This isn't found necessarily in Romans 2. It's another text of the Bible. You see, here's a couple of mistakes that that Christians make. Sometimes they say, good works earn our salvation. That's not true. That's not the gospel. So don't listen to things like that, Roman Catholics, Mormons, Jews. The other error, though, is that good works have no place in the Christian life. And here we see over and over that good works is mentioned. I just read 10 verses to you. Good works are mentioned over and over as being important. Not because... Your justification rests on that. That's not the foundation. Christ is. But because God evaluates those good works. This idea that a person can come to Christ. They can be baptized and then just live a sinful life. And no change at all. No change at all in their life. That's not found in scripture. Well, Philippians 2.12 says this. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not just as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Don't work for, you see the the prepositions are important. He doesn't say work for your salvation, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the beautiful part of it. It is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works through the believer to produce good work. Thank the Lord. I wouldn't even know what to do, right? The Bible's here, but sometimes we, even as Christians, we don't want to follow it. And God's working in us. Matthew 13. You remember the the parable of the soils? And Jesus says the good soil, that's the the believer, the seed, the gospel is thrown on the good soil. The person believes, they hear the word, they understand it. And they bear fruit and bring forth some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some... 30-fold. There's no zero yield for the Christian. They all produce fruit. Some produce more than others. But none produce zero. It's 100. It's 60. It's 30. You can go over, and we won't take the time to do it this morning, but you can go to James chapter 2 and he has paragraphs about this idea that you say you have faith but you have no works. You have no good works. You have no evidence of your faith. He says, look, the demons, the demons believe all that theology, and they're not saved. Show show me. He says, show me your good works, because if you're a Christian, the reformer said, you will have good works. John Calvin, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, yet yet in the sun it is not alone. Because it is constantly conjoined with light. So the sun's out there and it produces light and heat. And you expect both of those when the sun is shining. Well, if you are justified through faith alone and Christ alone, there will be fruit. There will be fruit. Jesus said, you know them by their fruit. You know them by their fruit. Not by what they say. Not by their intentions. By their fruit. None of us are perfect. But there's going to be some good fruit. Ephesians 2 Let's look at that. Ephesians 2, one of my, it is my favorite, I think, in the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This puts this whole idea together of, of the good works in the Christian life. It's about as clear as Paul can be here. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8. i got to get used to my new LSB here. You get used to one Bible all these years. You switch to a new one and it looks a little different on each page. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved. So what's our, what's our salvation based on? It says through faith. That, that's the vehicle that it happens through. And it's not of yourselves. Which means it's not of works. It is the gift of God. Not of works so that no man may boast. So God does it. God saves you. It's through faith. Now look at the next verse. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship. We're his creation. Even the The believer, not just a physical creation, but a spiritual creation, a spiritual work created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Good works. Let's not be so scared of good works that we don't affirm it for the Christian life. Because here it is. And look at the rest of the verse, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I mean, isn't it great that the Christian will have Christ and we're justified, and we don't have to worry about condemnation, and we don't have to worry about God's wrath, and the Christian will be rewarded for our good works. And we didn't even really do the good works. It was God doing them through us. And not only that, he planned them before time began so that we would do them. It's almost as if we should give God all the credit for everything he does in our life. Good and and godly men, they look at this passage in Romans 2 and they think, you know, that can't be right. He's got to be a hypothetical statement here. Paul's talking about, he's saying, you know, if a person could be saved by good works. And there's, they're godly men who take that view. They take it along the lines of Jesus when the man came up to him and said, how can I be saved? And Jesus said, well, obey the law. And the guy said, oh yeah, I do obey the law. And Jesus said, well, then give everything. And he says, I can't do that. And he walked away unsaved. Some think that's what Paul's talking about here. I don't think he is because he makes such an emphasis in Romans and in other books, on good works, so there's quite a few, in, in church history that, that take it just like I preach to you here, that good works are the evidence, the fruit, and the believer will be judged on the fruit and rewarded, not with their justification, but with rewards in heaven. This is what Paul says in Titus two fourteen. Jesus gave gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. A lot of those who take that other view say that the Christians really can't do any good deeds that glorify God fully, but it seems like the Bible is indeed saying that over and over, isn't it? Titus 2, I read to you. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that you may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Good works are not impossible for the believer, the believer can glorify God. We don't always do it. We, we fall short sometimes. We backslide. But we can do it, the Bible says. So what Paul's getting at here, and really the whole Bible is, is talking about that every true believer, every follower of Christ will produce works that will show up on the day of judgment. Everything's recorded, and you'll stand before Christ as a believer, and he'll say, here is your good works. Now, enter into my rest and Remember, he tells the apostles, you'll rule over these cities and you'll rule over these cities and you'll receive rewards for that. Well, next week, we'll then turn to 8 through 11 and look at this idea of the other group, the other side of the coin. Yes, the believer is rewarded for their good works because we're united with Christ. But the unbeliever is rewarded in a sense for their good work. And they receive the punishment, the wrath, the eternal condemnation. Let's now give thanks to our Father for producing good works in us. Lord, thank you so much that you do all of salvation. That even though uh, we will, as believers, stand before Christ on that day, that you've worked in us to produce fruit. That our faith is not dead that it does produce something that you can see and that even others can see in this world. We were sinners. We were lost. We were of those who were against you. And yet you sent your son, Father, to die for us, the wretched sinners that we were. And for those in faith here today, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. We know that we would have never had any good works if it wasn't for Christ. Thank you for saving us. Let us celebrate the Lord's Supper now with that kind of thankful heart. In the name of Christ.